Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Finance Simplified, the official podcast for Street Fins. We're here to break down the world of finance for you to understand from a relatable perspective with discussions with experts. This is episode 20 and I'm joined by Alex Patel. How have you been since our last episode two weeks ago? Been fine. Any exciting news? Yeah, I just got my first COVID vaccination shot yesterday. Nice. Which one did you take? I took the Moderna one. Hopefully I'll avoid any side effects. Great to hear. Sounds like we'll be back to normal soon. Yep. So Alex, we've said in past episodes that we're hoping to build a community around this podcast and really get to know our listeners. We know that those of you who listen to the podcast are highly motivated and incredibly smart. And many of you guys have reached out to us personally, which has led us to this exciting decision. From now on, after we release our second episode each month, we'll be making ourselves available for the last two weeks of a month for you guys to meet with one or both of us personally over Zoom. You can talk to us about the podcast, anything in finance, or just tell us about yourself so we get to know you better. Alex and I are happy to share with you how we run the podcast, how we get our all-star guests and our stories. And we're also just happy to have a conversation with you guys, whether or not it's about the podcast or about finance. If you're interested in meeting with us for 15 to 30 minutes over Zoom, there's a Calendly link in the description, calendly.com slash streetfins, where you can schedule an available time. We look forward to personally meeting you guys there. Yep. And we also want to remind you to follow us on social media at Streetfins on Twitter and Instagram for updates and to sign up for our newsletter, Finance Simplified, for simplified weekly recaps, finance tips, updates, and more. Also, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, we would love for you to join our clubhouse club, Finance Simplified. So Alex, this is part two of our conversation with AQR's former chief risk manager, Aaron Brown, on the topic of simplifying quantitative finance. What did we talk about in part one? So in part one, we got to learn the basics of quantitative finance, the history of quantitative finance, and how quantitative finance approaches risk management. We'll be getting more into important quantitative finance concepts, careers in quantitative finance, Aaron's own career, and thoughts on the future of quantitative finance, and much more in this part. But before we continue, we just want to remind you that if you're learning from our episodes and want to keep supporting what we're doing, we'd be eternally grateful if you gave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Additionally, we'd love to know what feedback you have for us, so fill out the feedback form in the description to let us know how we're doing and what you would like to see from us going forward. Also, stay tuned till the very end of our episode because we'll be teasing out May's guest. The first person to send us an email with the correct guest will get a shout out. Now, let's continue simplifying quantitative finance. From the minds of the students at StreetFins, this is Finance Simplified, the podcast that simplifies the seemingly complex and confusing world of money. I'm your host, Rohan Gupta. When you were working at AQR as their chief risk manager, something that you were working on was this idea of value at risk. So could you introduce us to that concept and sort of what it intends to show? Sure, a value at risk actually goes way back. This is back at JP Morgan in the late 80s and early 90s when I'm working on this. The idea of value at risk is you divide the future into two regimes. And you say, okay, 95% of the time, markets are normal. 95% of the time, price movements are limited. And we have lots and lots of experience with those days. So we don't really need the risk manager to worry too much about them. Because if we're making mistakes on those days, we're going to figure it out pretty quickly because those days happen a lot. But we say, you know, and it's just by convention, we say 5% of days are not like that. 5% of days are different but it's not that you lose more money on those days. 
it's that you lose so much money that you can't count on your normal systems and processes. Markets may have difficulties in those days. You may not be able to execute trade. You may have credit problems with people failing. You may have the government coming in and changing the rules. So what you do is you say, okay, we're going to divide days. And 95% of normal days, we're going to manage those based on statistics. Because they're normal days. The statistics are very reliable. And we're going to use very short-term specific data. So if you want to know, you know, what's the volatility of my stock portfolio, you're probably just going to look at the last 20 days or so, and you're just going to look at numerical stock prices. But if you want to say, okay, how about a crash? What if there's a stock market crash? Well, now you're not going to look at the last 20 days because the last 20 days don't have a crash in them. You're going to look at historic crashes. And so you're going to look at what are the biggest down days in the stock market. But you're not just going to look at the stock market. You're going to say, what happens when other markets crash? Because maybe there were some things, you know, there aren't very many crashes in history. So it may be that the set of stock market crashes don't capture all the risk. So we look for long-term qualitative ways to assess the risk outside the boundary. So once the risks get larger than the 95% point, so 95% of days, you either make money or you lose less than, say, $50 million. 5% of days, you lose more than $50 million. But for those days, the loss is not a good measure of the situation. The loss doesn't really tell you what's going on or what you need to do or what procedures and safeguards you need in place. For those days, you've got to focus on specific days. What might happen? You use stress tests, you use scenario analyses, and they're based on very long-term. You look back hundreds of years in history, if necessary. You look back at a wide variety of markets to answer those questions. What's interesting about VAR is, you know, <laughs> nobody invented it. There's a group of people, and probably a total of 100 people, I would say, virtually all of us in New York in the late 80s and early 90s, who were kind of working on this kind of problem. And no big company was interested in it. This was something traders were doing for themselves, because we were all traders. And uh, Nassim Taleb was in that group, and there were other people like that. And we had lots of different ideas about things. None of us said, hey, VAR would be a great way, value at risk would be a great way to study this. But then at two places, Bankers Trust and J.P. Morgan, and it worked out slightly differently in both places, but just to concentrate on J.P. Morgan, Sir Dennis Weatherstone was the CEO at the time, and he said, I want a 415 report. Dennis Weatherstone's a traditional banker, doesn't really understand investment banking, trading, and, and he's seeing that most of the risk of his company is from these trading organizations, and he's seeing that there are these huge unexpected losses because it turns out lots of people in different parts of the bank are putting on the same bet, but they didn't know they were all putting on the same bet. So he said, you know, I want 4.15 every day, 15 minutes after the stock market closes. I want a one-page report on my desk that tells me all the risk in the bank. Okay, and that's just a completely crazy thing. I mean, you know, it was just, it was just you know, laughable. A, you know, it took maybe until midnight before we even had our positions roughly reconciled, you know, preliminary reconciled before we go out the next day to do the actual reconciliations with other parties. And second, every department had a different kind of risk. You know, the interest rate traders were looking at duration. The option traders were looking at Delta and Gamma and Vega. You can't put all this on one page in any meaningful way. But value at risk was something we could do. And the thing about value at risk is we could say, okay, here is one number. Here is 
how much the bank is going to lose 5% of the time, given the positions it has on at the end of the day. So given our best guesses to the end of day positions, and it was just the best guess at that point, because, you know, lots of stuff was unreconciled, lots of feeds hadn't come in, lots of feeds had errors. Here is what we think we could lose the worst 5% of days tomorrow if positions don't change with no trading. That's a verifiable number because you can pretty quickly, if you're overestimating VAR or underestimating VAR, you very quickly figure it out because, you know, 20 or 40 or 80 days of data will tell you whether you're getting the right number of breaks or not. Not too many, not too few. So it's a reasonably objective number compared to all the other kinds of things you might measure like volatility or downside risk or conditional VAR or something like that. All of those are opinions. This is something reasonably objective because it can be validated. And what we discovered was, to everyone's surprise, nobody predicted this, was that computing VAR was really hard. We thought it was going to be easy. We knew there were data issues. We had to make some approximations and assumptions, but we thought it was something pretty easy to do. It turns out incredibly difficult, extremely expensive. We had to re-engineer systems throughout the bank. It's cost billions of dollars and lots and lots of talented people to put together a good VAR. But once you did, you learned tremendous amounts. It turned out to be incredibly valuable. There's no theoretical reason for it. Nobody's ever really come up with a good economic explanation of why this number is so valuable. But anybody who's made real risk decisions for a major financial institution over more than, say, you know, five or six years, you just get kind of a religious, superstitious respect for VAR because of how useful it is, how many times it saves you. Yeah, that's really astonishing because, I mean, you know, typically these numbers are tied to some fundamental economic theory or financial theory, but it's really interesting that it's so well regarded, but at the same time, there's not really a good reason like you mentioned. So another question I had is we mentioned some different mathematical concepts, standard deviation, as well as some of the other, those other things. But what are some other quantitative concepts that quantitative financial analysis uses? And I'm thinking of things like mean reversion. So what are some of the other concepts that you think are useful for quantitative financial analysis? Mean reversion and trend following. So those are kind of two parallel things are extraordinarily important. And they're so simple. One very basic set of quantitative techniques is trend following. You know, bet that the stuff that went up yesterday will go up tomorrow or go up today. Mean reversion is another very simple, very powerful one. Bet that the things that went up yesterday are going to go down today. There's a very old idea in finance, goes back to the 1950s, called the random walk hypothesis. And the random walk hypothesis basically says studying the past path of prices tells you nothing about the future movements. Okay, so both trend following and mean reversion are violations of the random walk. Trend following says, you know, if it's going up, it's going to keep going up. On average, you know, 51% of the time, but if you make thousands and thousands of trades, you can make this into a very safe, profitable strategy. Mean reversion says things are going to come back. Now, one of the arguments for the random walk is that if security prices aren't random walks, people can make consistent profits, right? If looking at the past path of prices gives you some hint of where they're going in the future, people can make profit. If, you know, trend following is right, if a trend begins, everyone should jump on the trend and the trend should, you know, shoot up in price to the point where there is no longer any future trending. But when you actually look at financial prices, what you see virtually always is there is a mix of trend following and mean reversion. 
on average, it's a random walk. So somebody coming in from 30,000 feet, an academic coming in and studying things over decades with thousands of stocks is going to see a random walk. But what they're really seeing is offsetting amounts of trend following and mean reversion. So a lot of what quants do is try to tease out for each specific asset or each specific price series the time scale on which there is trend following and the time scale on which there is mean reversion. A classic strategy is called value and momentum. So value is a form of mean reversion. Value says that if you know, price has gone up a lot, it's probably gotten above its fundamental value, so it's going to come back down. Trend following says that the stuff that was going up is going to keep going up. So if you do these on the right scale, if you do value over a five or 10-year horizon, you do trend following over a one-year horizon, you do a little mean reversion over one day, you know, and you mix these things together, you can actually get very profitable strategies, even though to somebody who just looked at the data without being very rigorous about time scale would say, oh, it's a random walk. Because on average, it is a random walk. That on average, the mean reversion and the trend following cancel out. So I think we've covered really the history of quant finance. We've gone over some of the theories or mathematical basis of quant finance, and then also some ideas with risk. But now I'd kind of like to transition into talking about careers as a quant. And a lot of students listen to this podcast. It's a podcast mainly, you know, directed towards students and educating them on different aspects of finance. And so I'd like to know if you're a student considering sort of a career in quant finance, but you don't really know where to start, what are some skills you would maybe recommend? What are some of the common majors, graduate degrees? I know you mentioned there's a lot of PhDs in the field. How would you sort of get your feet wet in this field? Hey, there are different kinds of firms. AQR, for example, we like to hire people with degrees in finance and economics. We wanted to see, you know, a lot of math, a lot of statistics, a lot of computer science on the resume, but fundamentally we wanted people who thought in financial or economic terms who kind of understood the broader environment. Other funds, Renaissance, for example, famously will not hire people with backgrounds in finance or economics. They only want people with technical skills, and they tend to hire people in either pure mathematics or machine learning, big data, things like that. Other firms have their own viewpoints, their own culture. So I would say the first thing you want to do is look at some specific firm. You don't try to prepare yourself for quant in general, because there's just, you know, the things you do that will make Renaissance like you aren't the things that would make AQR like you. Once you go to a specific firm and kind of get the culture and you read some of the materials they put out, you sort of look at their funds and what sort of strategies they hire, hopefully one of them will sort of appeal to you. One of them will seem like the kind of thing that seems right. And most of these big hedge funds, people have written books about. It's a guy named Jack Schweger who writes books called Market Wizards, and he's written several of them. And they just you know, sort of profile a whole bunch of different firms, not all quantitative, but, but a whole bunch of different firms. And you can kind of read through and say, yeah, these sound like the sort of people I want to work with. These sound like the sort of person I am with the sort of interest I have, the skills I have. And you'll find a wide variety. So don't think there's like just one kind of thing you have to do. A second thing is be very aware of how rapidly changing the business is. It may well be that machine learning and data science are going to displace virtually all human financial analysis. Certainly, at the very least, every place is going to want you to be competent on a computer. That means you should know SQL so you can grab your own data. You should know R or Python or both 
You should be very proficient with simple databases, Excel, things like that, because if you can't handle yourself with data, you know, if you, if you come into a firm and you can't grab your own data, you know, and write your own small programs, you don't have to be an IT person. You don't have to write production code, but typically you should be able to do your own analysis, your own prototyping, and gather your own data in pretty much any quantitative finance job. IT skills, and in particular computer science skills, the more the better, even if it's not your specialty, even if you do not want to be an IT person, even if you, you know, want to be a pure mathematician, the more you understand this stuff, the better, just because it's growing so rapidly and becoming so important. A third thing is there's lots of different career paths. So, you know, there are big companies, a PIMCO, a BlackRock, a Vanguard, something like that, that offer good hours, good salary, good benefits, not the sort of pressure and intense culture of a big hedge fund. They're not as glamorous. They don't pay as much, but they're easier to get. <laughs> they exist in more places. You don't have to go to New York or Greenwich or Long Island um, or London to work at these places. If you decide you want to go with a really top, glamorous, high-pressure place, you're going to want to make it your life. <laughs> you know, the people at these firms who are happy, this is what they want to do. They want to do quantitative finance night and day. They want to hang out with other people doing quantitative finance. They get very emotionally involved in their research and their work. It's not a nine-to-five job. You make more money that way, you know, it's more glamorous, it's more exciting, but it can be rough on quality of life, depending on the sort of person you are. Also, my feeling is you should give serious thought to doing it on your own. If you really believe that you can beat the market, you don't really need anybody else. You can just go out and get rich. And if you're taking a job because you want to leverage your skills, that's one thing. So you might say, look, I think I could beat the market, but I think I could beat them a lot more if I had the backing of a big firm and I had other people around me to help bounce ideas off and for me to help their ideas. I mean, that's great. That's fine. That, in fact, is the reason most people do. But if you say, I have no idea how to beat the market, I'm just lost. I don't even know how to start thinking about it and I don't have any confidence I could do it. So I want to go and work for D.E. Shah or Renaissance, so they'll teach me how to do it. That doesn't work. <laughs> They're not going to hire you once they figure out that you have no confidence you can beat the market. And if they do hire you, they don't have some secret. A lot of people imagine that, you know, these hedge funds have some secret. And once you learn it, you know, you're rich for life. It, it just doesn't work that way. And what they have is a culture. And they bring in really smart people and they have a culture that helps these people work together and produce profit. But there's no secret you could, you know, put on a thumb drive and steal away and go get rich from. So if you have no urge to beat the market on your own, or you have no idea even what that really means, you might want to think about another career. You know, I'm just not, you know, you, you, you know, you might be able, if you're smart enough, you can fake your way into a job, but I just don't think you'll be happy doing it. Put your skills to work doing something you have confidence that you're adding value. Yeah, and you just gave advice about what other people should do in terms of their career. Now, I'm more curious about your career and your time at AQR. So you were the former risk manager there. And I'm curious, you know, what did you do to get there? What was your day-to-day -day like? And what old lessons did you just learn from working at AQR and working on Wall Street in general? Okay, well, I was working at Morgan Stanley and I uh, got a call from AQR they wanted to hire a risk manager. They had never had a dedicated risk manager before. They had divided up the responsibilities among other people. 
so I thought that this was hugely interesting to me because Wall Street, this is back in 2007, yeah, 2007, even before 2008, Wall Street had gotten incredibly regulated and nobody really wanted new ideas. I felt like everything I was doing was to please regulators. The only thing I really enjoyed my last years at Morgan Stanley, I was kind of a troubleshooter. So I would get sent in to situations where something was wrong. I really enjoyed that, you know, kind of flying in, finding a situation where things were going wrong, figuring out what to do. That was fun. I mean, lots of people didn't like to do it. I wanted to do it. Most people, the last thing they wanted to do was go get mixed up in some bad situation. But there was less and less of that. And there was more and more of meetings and talking to the board and talking to the executive committee and talking to regulators and talking to investors who asked the same questions and who didn't really want my deep expertise. And they wanted me to say certain things anyway. Well, I don't want to get negative. I love Morgan Stanley. They did a great company and they did great things for me. And I had a wonderful career there. But I was very happy to kind of chuck all the regulation and run into a place where all they wanted me to do was actually manage risk. Day-to-day, what did I do? AQR is a very collegial place. It's not a bureaucratic place. So I spent my day wandering around talking to people. And the risk manager should talk to everyone in the organization. And that includes the people who come in at night to clean and empty the wastebasket who aren't employees or the you know people who drive the truck that delivers oil to the building and things like that. Because you never know where things are going to pop up and happen. You just got to understand how everything works. You see things on paper, you see organization charge procedures, and then you stand over somebody's shoulder and see what they actually do, and it's different. (laughs) You see people who have their passwords on post-it notes. You see people who ask somebody, what would happen if this guy was sick? And people think, hmm, you know, yeah, we really wouldn't be able to get things done if we couldn't call them up and ask them things. So these are the sort of things you're doing. There's also, even at a hedge fund, you're doing some talking to regulators and meetings. You're doing a lot of talking to investors. Investors want to meet the risk manager. One thing that was I very insecure about when I went there is I thought, hmm, you know, I'm going to get calls from investors and they're going to ask me, you know, AQR runs hundreds and hundreds of funds and we have thousands of positions in each one. And they're going to call me up and say something like, you know, I just saw that XYZ stock had accounting fraud. What are you doing about it? You know, I've never heard of XYZ. <laughs> it's not, I wouldn't know anything. And one of the things I liked about the troubleshooting at Morgan Stanley is I wasn't expected to know anything about the area. You know, I could go in and I could learn on the fly and that was expected, but I thought investors are going to expect the risk manager to know every single position. Morgan Stanley had a chief risk officer, the guy I worked for, a guy named Tom Dalla. He did know every position. <laughs> he was the kind of guy where if an investor called up and asked about XYZ, he would have an answer. But I'm not like that. I'm absent-minded. I kind of concentrate on the stuff I concentrate on. I'm not up to this minute on everything. But I found out something really interesting that was a great relief is if a story came up on Bloomberg, so there's a story, there's a crisis in the oil market, there's a revolution somewhere, there's a this, there's a that. It would be about a day before investors called me. <clears throat> I, see, I thought they'd be calling me before the story came up on Bloomberg. So as long as I just read the top headlines on Bloomberg, did like 10 minutes of research, calling the right person in the firm at AQR to figure out what the situation was, looking at the reports, I could have a good answer for investors. Investors, for the most part, 
wanted to know that somebody was in charge. Somebody was thinking about these things. Nobody was asleep at the switch. They didn't really expect you to have an answer. Oh, well, this revolution, here's exactly how we're going to, you know, change our trading to take care of it. So that part of the job turned out to be kind of fun, too. It would have been not fun <laughs> if they had called me about all kinds of stuff I'd never heard of. And it's just a friendly place, you know, and you spend most of your life there. And, you know, a lot of your friends are there. And, and for me, I was commuting up from Manhattan. So I had a fairly long commute on the train up to Greenwich every day. So, you know, it, it did take a big chunk of hours out of my life. I would not want to do that today. I would not have wanted to do that for my whole life. But for the 10 years I was there, it was very exciting. Yeah, it's clear from our conversation and from your entire career that this is a passion of yours. And, and I'd say you're an expert in the field. And so I'd love to kind of understand where you see quantitative finance headed in the future. And I know right now we're seeing, you know, high frequency trading and other technologies that have really ballooned. But do you see quantitative finance being applied to other aspects, maybe on the consumer side, any other places? I mean, what's your take on that? Well, high-frequency trading is on the downside. It's been declining since maybe 2012 or so, and it's, you know, the profits really mostly got out of it. What happened was the things people used to call high-frequency trading got incorporated into what everybody does. Then that's the way of the world in finance. I would say the biggest change in quantitative finance is, I think it is quite likely it will be virtually replaced by machine learning and big data and data science that the day of people doing this kind of research by hand may be passed. There will still be lots of room for humans in this process that will be important. But I think that working with a computer as a partner, at least, if not a computer as a boss, is going to be something everyone should contemplate. I agree with you. I think these techniques will spread far beyond finance. I think that almost everything can be managed with the sort of quantitative tools that were learned in finance, just as, you know, I went to Las Vegas to learn the kind of skills I would need to, to do risk-taking in finance. Risk-taking in finance is going to teach us the kind of skills, and it really has taught us the kind of skills that are going to be useful for managing all sorts of things in society, especially as things get more computerized. If you have a huge bureaucracy of humans managing something, then these financial techniques, these quantitative techniques are not so useful. But once all those people are replaced by computers and most of the decision is made by computers, I think that a lot of people who were successful in quantitative finance are going to find themselves applying these things to other fields. But there is one constant. The great thing about the asset management business is assets have to be managed. People can take their money out of BlackRock or AQR or Renaissance, but they have to put it somewhere. Somebody's got to manage it. As the world gets wealthier, there's more and more assets to manage. So there is no way that the industry goes away or shrinks. How it's done can change quite a bit, but the growth is just baked into it. You know, as we have a major catastrophe that puts us back in the Stone Age, the future for quantitative tools for, the, for asset management, the kind of things you do on buy side, have just an unlimited future. Yeah, thanks for giving your thoughts on that. And so this is our final question, and it's something that we ask all our guests, children, and the question is this. So knowing what you know now about business and finance and lessons you've learned throughout your whole career, 
what lessons have you given your children about the world of money? And would you recommend the same for students and other children today? The main thing I did for my kids was to discuss finance with them. It's amazing how superstitious people are about finance. When I teach introductory finance courses, one of the questions I ask the student, I say, how many of you here know how much money your parents make? And it's always a small minority. And people are embarrassed to talk about it. But when you think about it, your kids in college, so kids your age, you're making decisions. You're borrowing lots of money, possibly. You're making decisions about courses and careers. But a fundamental piece of information is how much money does it take to mimic the lifestyle I grew up in? You may not want that. Maybe you'll say, gee, I could live on a lot less. You know, I want to live in a yurt somewhere. Or you might say, no, no, I want more. I want yachts and private planes and whatever. But as a baseline, you say, okay, here's how much would I have to earn to mimic my parents' lifestyle? And more stuff, you know, you know, none of them would know the parents' income tax rate or how to fill out a 1040 form for a real finance. Not, I mean, some people, have, some students have done it like for a summer job, but I mean, when you're really filling one out for a adult financial life, many of them have no idea how their parents choose investments, have never done it for themselves. So my feeling is that you teach your children what you did. Don't preach. You don't try and theorize too much. Don't try to give them wisdom you don't have. Just say, look, here's what I did and here's how it worked out. Learn from my mistakes or, or mimic my successes is up to you. And let them make mistakes. An awful lot of people, the first time they buy a stock, for example, might be when they're in their 40s or 50s and where they're, you know, putting tens of thousands of dollars at work where, you know, they're big consequences. Going on to Robinhood and buying some $1 fractional shares is a very, very cheap way to get over the hump. You know, buying your first stock ought to be putting $1 at risk, not $10,000 at risk. Buying your first stock ought to be when you're a broke college student, and if you lose this money, then, well, you know, that's one last beer you can buy, as opposed to, you know, when you need to make financial decisions for mortgages or, or 401ks or retirement or college planning, where a mistake can be disastrous. So... Being straightforward about what you've done and non-judgmental, non-pedagogical about it, just here's what I did and here's what I and here's how it worked out for me. And you know, forcing them to make financial decisions on their own for very small stakes. I think those are the two things I would do. That's great advice. And with that, I know we're out of time. So it was really good to have you on. It was a real pleasure to talk to someone with your background and your career. And we hope to have you at some point in the future again. Thank you very much, Rod. Hey everyone, that was the end of part two of our two-part interview with Aaron Brown on simplifying quantitative finance. We hope you enjoyed and learned more about quantitative finance from him. The entire conversation was amazing. Alex, what were some of the key takeaways from the second part? I think one key takeaway is that quantitative finance concepts aren't all that hard to understand, and in fact are prevalent in a lot of other fields. Concepts like mean reversion and trend following are common in so many places, and they interact in some incredible ways in financial markets. Seeing how they related to the random walk hypothesis was also quite fascinating. Exactly. And another takeaway I had was in just how creative you can be in quantitative finance. You can create an algorithm or a model or any kind of process that can provide insights and be a valuable tool. Aaron's account of contributing to value at risk really showed that quantitative finance really is all about critical thinking and using math to be inventive and implement and test ideas.
like value at risk to come up with better insights to act on. Yeah. And it's also important to understand that quantitative finance isn't just limited to investing. It can apply to any aspect of finance and the financial industry. It's the field where you can measure things from how risky a bank's systems are to how pandemics will unfold to how your investment portfolio will perform. And this gives rise to a lot of careers as well. And within those careers, it's apparent that skills like critical reasoning, coding, obviously math, as well as an undying passion for quantitative finance are all necessary skills to have. I also think his view on the future is quite relevant, given how automation is disrupting every industry, even if it's not the typical robots are coming for your job situation, because humans can still play a large role. Agreed. Well, Alex, that wraps up our part two conversation and takeaways. And now it's time for us to tease the next episode's guest. Remember, the first person who sends an email to us at fspodcast at streetfins.com with the correct guest will be getting a shout out in the next episode. So here are the two hints for our next guest. Number one, he's a co-founder of legendary investment firm, Oaktree Capital. And number two, he's a part-time professor at the University of Southern California. The next episode will be out on May 1st, so we'll talk to you all then. Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It truly means the world to us. If you like this episode and others, let us know by subscribing and giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts and following us on Spotify. Share us with your friends and check us out on Instagram and Twitter, both at StreetFins. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rohan Invest. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email fspodcast at streetfins.com. Thanks once again to Aaron Brown for his insights today. I hope you understand the topic of quantitative finance in a more simplified way. Once again, we're really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content. Join the Streetfins community and tell your friends about us so that they can learn about finance too. We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.